One of the tools I've started to use recently is Zapper. For those of you that were a part of the 2017 bull market, it was characterized by just opening up Blockfolio and refreshing it over and over and over again. And also anytime you ever made a trade, you would have to go into Blockfolio and manually input that trade information to make sure that your portfolio that you think that you have matches what you actually have. With Zapper, you don't have to do any of that anymore because all you have to do with Zapper is input your Ethereum addresses and then Zapper will give you a really elegant report as to where all your money is. So there will never ever be any disconnect between the money that you think that you have and the money that Zapper reports to you. Zapper looks directly on chain and gives you a nice portfolio summary of all your assets and how many assets and your, all of your debt and all of your lending positions, all of your positions all at once. So there's no more editing your portfolio because Zapper just does it for you. One thing that I thought was really useful about Zappers was when I plugged my wallets in, I found that I had submitted liquidity to Uniswap forever ago, and without Zapper, I would have probably lost that forever because Zapper knows where your money is better than you do. It's also the gateway to investing your money into this ever-expanding list of available DeFi platforms like Curve, Balancer, Uniswap, Yearn. In the bankless nation, there is this growing number of money Legos and keeping track of them all is just super overwhelming, which is why you could just go to Zapper and Zapper will, will solve the problem of there just being too many money Legos to choose from. So check them out at zapper.fi, enter your Ethereum addresses and check out your portfolio and see if there's anything that you missed. Your Ethereum address is a bankless bank account, but here's the problem. It doesn't have a human readable name. It's represented by this long hexadecimal string that no one can read. Unstoppable Domains has the solution to that problem. It provides a domain name for your Ethereum address. So instead of telling someone to send you funds to 0xE3BA blah blah blah, you can tell them to send funds to yourname.crypto, a domain name for your Ethereum address. At unstoppabledomains.com, you can search for blockchain domains like this and find tools to easily launch websites on decentralized web technology like IPFS. You can even have unstoppable domains help you manage your .crypto or .eth or even .zil domain name addresses at their unstoppable domains manager. Websites have domain names, .com, .org, your bankless bank account on Ethereum should have a domain name too. So go to unstoppabledomains.com, register a domain name for your Ethereum address now. Unstoppabledomains.com. everyone to state of the nation number 20 we are super excited to bring this to you every tuesday live on youtube we've got a really jam-packed exciting agenda we've got damien brenner here who is the founder and ceo of open zeppelin he is a security expert we're going to be talking about the recent 30 something million dollar harvest tax so we'll, we'll definitely start there and get into the topic is DeFi secure yet? But this is a, um, a show where we talk about what's happening generally in DeFi, particularly what's happened over the weekend or the last week. And we relate those events to the big picture insights that you get from the Bankless newsletter and our primary podcast. What we hope to do is every single episode of State of the Nation is drop some insights and action items for you. Of course, this comes out on YouTube every Tuesday. You may be watching it live now. If not, you can catch it in podcast format on Wednesdays as well. It's released there. David, how are you doing, man? It's, it's BTC pump day, so I'm just having <laughs> a great day. BTC is pumping, and David is happy about that. All right, so we've got a, a jam-packed agenda about DeFi security, about the dark side of composability, um, really the definition of, of trustlessness too. Mm -hmm. So for this episode to catch all of that, but let's talk about some other things that are new in the bankless nation. We just dropped an episode with our friend, Nick Carter. Mm -hmm. It's the third time, I think. I want to say third time Nick has been on some bankless associated some sort of program. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Media format. W what'd you like about that podcast? Yeah, I think what Nick was talking about in that podcast and in the article that that podcast kind of stood on uh, gave a pretty compelling reason as to why like the DeFi yield farming DeFi summer ended so quickly, right? As soon as gas prices hit 400 guay, 
that was it. It was over because so many people got priced out. People had to sit on their hands and stop participating. And kind of the, one of the fundamental reasons why DeFi summer 2020 was a thing was that everyone was sorry, able to participate until gas prices hit 400 guay. So we got Nick Carter on to talk about this cycle that happens where you know people transact, then gas fees go up, and then people get priced out, so they stop transacting, and then the party kind of stops, right? But uh, the the question that remains is like, all right, well, this is a cycle. So at some point, you know, we have like 20, 30, 40 guay uh, block, block uh, uh, gas prices right now. So like the party is, is it's it's ready to be, it's, it's an open invitation to get that party started again. That's kind of where we are in the DeFi block space cycle. So I really enjoyed that conversation with Nick. Yeah, it was great. So David wants to get the DeFi party started again. He's hoping yeah. low gas fees will do that is my <laughs> takeaway. <laughs> All right. Also, we've got some uh, really exciting news. Mm-hmm. We've been trying to do this for a while right. and it's finally about to happen. Raul Paul mm-hmm. from Real Vision mm-hmm. is coming to the Bankless Nation. So we are scheduling a podcast mm-hmm. with Raul Paul. He's accepted our invitation We hope to talk a little bit about central bank digital currency. I'm sure we will. But we also hope to talk about his case, Mm -hmm. his thesis for Ethereum Mm -hmm. and DeFi. I mean, he's a well-known kind of macro investing guy. He totally understands the space. He totally understands Bitcoin, the asset. I want to talk to him about ETH, the asset, and Ethereum and DeFi. So I'm super excited about that, man. What about you? Yeah, Raul Paul, he's one of those guys. He's very similar to, to us, at least with me at, at Bankless and, and producing podcasts and, and articles. Like I actually do that for so I can be more educated. And then yeah. I kind of just share that education with like what, what I learned with everyone else. And that's what and that's what Bankless is to me. Uh, I think that's what Raul Paul's uh, you know real vision is to him. Like he is teaching, but he's also learning at the same time. Right. And I think he and I listen and follow to, to Raul Paul and what he puts out. And I think he's really in that learning phase where he's really curious about what's going on in the crypto world. And he he now understands Bitcoin. Like he's been going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole for like the past two months. He's onboarded to, to Bitcoin. Ethereum's harder. Ethereum's harder to get onboarded onto. It, it def- yep. What's going on in DeFi is harder to it's harder to pull out signal there because we're going in every single direction. And so I'm really excited to get that conversation going with Raul Paul and kind of give him the bankless pitch as to what DeFi means to us. Yeah, pure educator. And mm-hmm. he also invests. So he puts his money where mm-hmm. he's uh, where he's selling his education, which is the best way to do it. Really excited about that. So that will be, let's see, we'll record with him next week. So two weeks from now mm-hmm. on Monday, you should expect the episode on the Bankless Podcast. Uh, lastly, hot. we are, gonna it's going to be hot. It's going to be hot. Uh, lastly, we are releasing something else that's hot, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. our first NFT art piece. Yeah. So I'm not going to show that, just a tease, because we'll get to that at the end of the episode, but it's mm-hmm. on one of David's favorite subjects. Mm-hmm. That's that's your hint. Yeah. You got to wait till the end of the episode mm-hmm. to see what that is. It's been in the um, news cycle recently. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's start with the question I always ask mm-hmm. you, David, every single state of the nation. It's this, what is the state of the nation right now, David? Yeah, the state of the nation is hardening. And before we get into any inappropriate jokes, hardening <laughs> is, is reference to code getting better, getting more locked in, getting more solidified. Think of like a turtle's shell, right? And so, you know, the, the and this conversation started at the DAO hack, right? The DAO hack wasn't a hack. It was an unintended use of the protocol that resulted in the loss of funds because the DAO wasn't a hard system. It, it had exploits. It had soft soft points that could be attacked. And uh, and what we're talking about with Damien in a second is how uh, code on Ethereum, code in DeFi is hardening. It's getting more efficient. It's getting more secure. Uh, and that's what we're doing this week in the Bankless Nation. Very cool. All right. So every time something attacks the Bankless Nation, attacks mm-hmm. Ethereum, attacks DeFi, mm-hmm. we get stronger. I'm not going to yeah. use the word harder, but <laughs> that's the hard thing with fire with that, with that the, you were talking state. about. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Very good. All right. Well, b- before we go into other territory, we want to welcome our guest, who is a security expert, mm-hmm. uh, Damian Brenner. He is from Open Zeppelin. Damian is the CEO of Open Zeppelin, which is a an Ethereum and DeFi really related uh, security firm. We're going to start with him by talking about the Harvest hack. Damien, how are you doing today, sir? You there? Hey, Ryan. Hey, David. Thank you for having me here. Oh, hey, man. Th- it's thanks great for being here. 
It's great to have you. Like uh, David and I are not security experts. (laughs) (laughs) We wanted to put somebody who is in front of the Bankless Nation to talk about some of these things. This is, of course, not the first um, event in DeFi we've had, but over the weekend, there was a hack in a protocol called Harvest. Um, I think uh, Sassel on his daily Gway uh, site called it uh, a rotten harvest was was the, the subtitle there. Um, maybe we could start there. What happened this weekend with that? Um, I guess maybe you could call it a hack. You could call it an exploit. We'll get to that in a little bit. But um, can you tell us what happened? Yeah. So Harvest uses price feeds to understand the value of their assets and makes distributions accordingly. So uh, they were using, in particular, Curves AMM, Automated Market Maker, spot price. And the the attacker, someone that we don't know yet who who they are, they used a flash loan to borrow a total of kind of 70 something million dollars. They used around $11 million to buy USDT uh, using USDC, which actually created uh, USDT price to go up. Then they deposited $60 million into the harvest bot. Then they did the kind of like the opposite operation where they sold the $11 million of USDT, dropping the USD price uh, down. And then they withdrew uh, around $61 million from the vault. So overall, what they did was they used the flash loan to get huge amounts of money to manipulate the market price of USDT. And they entered and they sold they entered the vault and they, they, they exited the vault, uh, netting the difference, which was around like 500K uh, per cycle. The thing is like this person did this several times, 32 times in total. So 500K times 32, that's a lot of money. This person made around like 20, $30 million, um, which was, uh, again, um, economic, exploit as we can say economic exploit okay so we've seen this kind of attack before how would you classify an economic exploit like how would you characterize an economic exploit versus a different kind of exploit yeah we've seen this things happening uh people manipulating price bids or price oracles using flash loans to manipulate the market and you know buy and sell at different time, moments in time. This, this something very similar happened at BCX, one of the hacks that they suffered a couple of weeks or months ago, where again, uh, there was a flash loan, uh, market was manipulated. There was a small difference there where like there were two automated market makers. So it was more of a sophisticated operation, but. Going back to your question, uh, the important thing here is that uh, the security of the systems was compromised, like money was siphoned because of a kind of like economic or financial operation that manipulated price and allowed people to uh, get kind of like a better terms in their deals or their trades. Okay. so. And the important point of conversation is the difference between a an attack, an art like a, an economic attack and arbitrage. Because on one side of the spectrum, we like people take advantage of of arbitrage opportunities on Ethereum all of the time. There is maybe the balancer die USDC ETH pool, and then there's the Uniswap die ETH pool and the Uniswap EUSDC ETH pool. And arbitragers can make sure that these exchanges are balanced with each other and take a small cut of the profit by balancing out the differences in prices from these different exchanges. And then there's what just happened here, where this is that same thing, but at the same time, the attacker also changed itself, the the uh, the balance of each of these pools uh, tokens, right? And so it, this is just an arbitrage opportunity, but it, the arbitrage opportunity is created by the attacker, right? And so how, how do you draw the line between what is just normal arbitrage and what's an arbitrage attack? It's a very interesting question uh, from an ethical standpoint. You know, what is a hack? What is an, ex- an exploit? And what is an opportunity? 
Uh, in the traditional world, would you call uh, high frequency trading, buying a couple of servers and putting them really close to a New York Stock Exchange an arbitrage opportunity or is that an exploit on, on the system? Uh, you can also say that it depends about the amounts that people trade or you know win or lose, but uh, I, I, I like it's a very complex thing. Also, there are a lot of blurred lines between what uh, an economic uh, vulnerability is as opposed to a logic error or vulnerability. In the end, these are like systems where code powers real money. So when money is compromised, either because of a logical flow or because of an economical uh, flow or a flowing design, uh, you as a project need to take all the necessary steps to avoid that. And you as a user need to educate yourself or trust uh, different people or institutions to do their due diligence and, and know where you're putting your money. Okay, so we, we know that th this is an attack because uh, there was an unintended use of the protocol that lost people money, right? But that unintended word is actually like subjective. And on Ethereum, there's nothing subjective about code on Ethereum. There's either code on Ethereum and it runs as deployed or there's not. And so this is kind of where we uh, were taught what we were talking about on the Bankless newsletter yesterday. Like, how do we actually define trustless if we are using these systems that may be unintended by the way that the author of the code deployed it, but still intended because that's what the code initially, like actually explicitly uh, enabled, right? So, so Damien, I'm, I'm wondering if you have your own version of the word trustless and how, how would you define trustless? Yeah, uh, I think in the end, you always need to trust something or someone. Like in your example, you say that there's like smart contract code deployed on Ethereum. So if you send a transaction, you don't need to trust that code because you can verify it. But in the end, you're also trusting that the EVM works as intending, intended. You're trusting that the you know, pool of miners will validate your transaction accordingly. So in, with respect to trust or trustless, it's all about understanding what your threat model is. What are the things that you trust? What are the things that you can verify? What are the things that you do not trust? And how do you, uh, you know, build your system accordingly? And how do you uh, take the necessary steps? And how do you monitor also your systems or your trades if you are if you are interacting with these systems so you prevent bad things from happening? So, is trustlessness even real? Is is that a real thing? Ah, it's a. It's a very bland concept to me. Um, I think in the end, you always need to trust something mm -hmm. or someone. The more you can verify that, the better. Like in, in a smart contract, you can audit the code so you know what, what the code is gonna do, as opposed to a traditional you know, legal agreement or a bank where you have no idea how the bank operates, you have no idea what's going on behind the curtains. Uh, but in the end, like going back to a smart contract code, uh, Maybe there's someone that has the power to upgrade and change the rules of the smart contract. So even you're trusting them. Mm -hmm. So are you trusting a single person? Are you trusting a multi-sig with five people? Or are you trusting a, you know, a DAO with thousands of, of, of members across the globe? What's the probability and the likelihood of those people colluding and, and going against you? So Damien, let's talk about what Harvest uh, now that we have information about the this attack, this attack did happen. So now that we know, now we, now that it did happen, we know that it could happen after the fact. What, how should have Harvest changed how their protocol was uh, constructed in order to have prevented this? What was the weakness that was really exploited here? Yeah. Now, so on one side, the Harvest team took all necessary steps in terms of you know building the code, open sourcing it hiring security auditing firms to review the code. Uh, I think the one mistake that they did was, you know, it was very, they, they naively relied on Curve's AMM for a price oracle fee, knowing that that was a, a vulnerability that was previously exploited in VCX, for example. Mm. Uh, there are different protocols that address the price oracle feed from different perspectives. And we can go into that uh, because that's a huge challenge that the Ethereum space faces, especially if you do it in a decentralized fashion. Uh, 
but it was a, definitely avoidable. And also, I want to say something related to the audits, like as security auditors, uh, these things can happen. You can you know, miss things, but also it's important to know that a security audit is not a sign off. Uh, a security audit firm, it's not you know, vouching for the security of something and ensuring that something is secure. It's just an informational thing that we provide based on our experience. We have, you know, I think the best security researcher team in the world with respect to smart contracts and Ethereum in particular. And, and we take a lot of time and effort making sure that they're always up to date with the latest things that are happening so that our chances of missing something are diminished or reduced. So Damien, you offered to tell us a bit more about this. Um, in this particular exploit, economic exploit, uh, where people lost money, bottom line, people lost money. Um, it was due to a reliance on a price oracle from Curve. And you indicated that that's, you know, somewhat of a soft spot in DeFi in general. Um, David called the, the episode title of State of the Nation hardening, right? Um, you know, we've had a couple of these now that target price oracles, uh, soft spots in automated market makers with flash loans. Are we starting to get smarter? Are we starting to, to harden around this particular problem subset? What are the possible solutions here? Yeah, so in particular, this was a known vulnerability. So one problem that we're seeing is even though vulnerabilities are already known, not everyone is implementing them. Mm. And here we get into the you know, kind of struggle that projects have between going fast to market and shipping new products versus being diligent and reducing the risk that their users have. Uh, and some, you no, know, some projects have, some projects have different, you know, profile risk or different pressures from their token holders or investors or team. Um, and that's why we as a, as a company always try to, the question is how do you scale security in that respect? Because uh, if the space needs to, you know, become harder and how do you, uh, scale security with the how with the you know the, the exponential growth that DeFi or the space is having, and we as a company don't think that you scale uh, security by hiring more auditors or you know training <laughs> more audit stuff. But something something we did uh, like three years ago is we created uh, this uh, open source library called Open Zeppelin Contracts, which yep. became the standard library for developing smart contracts with over 2 million downloads. And our approach there was to provide developers with standard modules of smart contracts that were already vetted by the community and vouched that they could use and reuse and put together for building their own applications. So they already have security practices built in. So they could not only ship faster, but also with security in mind, as opposed to reinventing the wheel. Yeah, what you start to get is to a place with these libraries where you've got um, all of these different eyes on the libraries, right? So you get tons of people looking at it. It's it's not uh, fresh code. It's code that's trusted in production and being used. You know, I even noticed in, in DeFi Summer, um, basically everyone who was doing some kind of a yield form, farm of one type or another, it wasn't net new code. It was like a fork of synthetics, right? And some of the, the hardened co contract that they had already built out. So it, it, it almost seems like that is the way to sort of scale up security is you use these very trusted, you know, modules, contract modules that other projects are using that other projects have eyes on. You do, you try to minimize the amount of net new code that, that you're putting out there. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, to some extent, yes. Like, I think that's a good thing that people are using other modules, but in the end, like if someone is using, let's say uh, synthetics staking, module synthetics build it for their own use case and your use case will be probably very different yeah. and you know customizing that contract and also planning it to other contracts that's when things start to get complicated our approach with the contracts library was to build standard kind of like plain vanilla modules so that they could fit every situation and the things that you could build on top would be quite standardized in some way uh, so that's actually something we're exploring right now when we have an open discussion in our community forum about, you know, how do we find uh, the basic foundational components of DeFi and provide those to the community 
as plain vanilla standardized contracts that everyone can use. And again, I think, or we think that's a way to scale security, which is tied to our mission as a company to protect the open economy. Very cool. And that is something I, I think folks lose track of this because um, we talk so much in DeFi about scalability, right? And generally when we're talking about scalability, we're talking about things like transactions per second. If only Ethereum could, could uh, host more transactions per second. Well, that's only one dimension of scalability. When we're talking about a global financial system, you know, security, maybe that's even more important than the amount of transactions. Are the contracts that we trust, are the core primitive DeFi protocols that we trust actually secure, right? So uh, security is a massive dimension of scalability for this open financial system. That's why we appreciate the work that, that you guys are doing. But I want to get back to something, a thread that David was unpacking a little bit about this, this notion of trustlessness, right? And wait, what we might want to use is a bit more of the term, like um, per, per you, were, you given that you were just talking about, it's like, it's kind of a spectrum. So we might use a term like trust minimization, right? Rather than trustlessness to sort of narrow down the actual pieces that we are trusting and that we can't see. Um, but you mentioned something earlier about, hey, even in these DeFi protocols, you are trusting something. This is what the transaction behind the harvest hack actually looks like. Right, so um, it you know for folks listening on the podcast who can't see this, I call I call a, this attack uh, the 160 <laughs> IQ attack. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's a uh, it's it's just a blob of of you know uh, lines and and dots and transactions in and out, and this happened in like a seven minute period of time, maybe less, and it repeated over and over again. I mean, a, a typical DeFi user on the bankless journey does not understand this. Right, does not understand this and does not understand why harvest like went wrong. And if they had funds in it, probably doesn't understand why they just lost a whole bunch of money. So that's back to your point about um, some trust being being required, even in these DeFi transactions. I, I guess you know the question is like we're not trusting necessarily a bank. We can see all of the code executed on chain, but in the most trust minimized sorts of DeFi protocols, what core things do we have to trust? How can we boil out everything else and get to the to kind of the core pieces in the most trust-minimized DeFi protocols? And David, in his piece earlier this week, talked about that, hey, that's the way we scale DeFi, is we get to a place of massive trust minimization of these protocols. But how do we get to that place? And what do those protocols even look like? What are we still even trusting in that scenario? Yeah. Even though, as you said, the smart contract code is open and anyone, everyone can, or anyone can, can inspect it, uh, very few have actual, the actual skills to understand all of this. So in the end, you're kind of like trusting that the project team that is building this has understood what they're building and took all the necessary steps to minimize those potential exploits. What that means is like, you know, defining what the threat model is, implementing non-vulnerable uh, kind of security measures for non-vulnerabilities, understanding in which scenarios their system could fail, uh, because in the end, these are like living systems and there could be scenarios with respect to price manipulation or others where their systems could break and generate losses for people. Uh, systematize that audit your system, and then perform continuous operation uh, monitoring on your system so that you can see if your system is approaching one of those critical scenarios. And if that were to be the case, have the necessary safeguards or circuit breakers implemented in your code to make sure that you can take action and prevent bad things from happening. For example, if you're seeing that there's a price manipulation happening, you could have a functionality in your contracts where you can post that, that feature. And, and uh, then you see that happening and then you do something about it. Can we get to a place with some of these DeFi protocols where the only things that we have to trust are Ethereum, the protocol, and obviously the EVM, right? Because anything on Ethereum requires that at, at a minimum, requires trust in Ethereum and the platform. And then just trust in the smart contract code itself, that there's enough value secured in it that it's gone through enough kind of eyes on the security that it is um, like trusted enough. And, that, and that's kind of it. Like, is that 
is that sort of what the objective is for a lot of these DeFi protocols to minimize everything until all you have left is Ethereum, the protocol, and just some code in a contract securing billions of dollars with, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, developers who've, who've looked at the code and audited it and it's gone through every security you know, review that, that exists. Is that kind of the, the gold standard, I guess, the most trust minimized thing that you can do? Maybe something like a, a Uniswap V1 comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. Like in the end, there's something about the Lindy effect here. Uh, yeah. you know, the more mature projects in the space are not suffering that much you know, vulnerabilities as the new ones. And there's uh, you know, learning experience plus resources, plus community, plus uh, you know, infrastructure that they have and they built to prevent things like this from happening. Uh, so again, we go to the problem is how do new projects get access to all these things uh, so that they can build with a safe foundation or a strong foundation, but without having all the necessary resources, experience or community. And that's, that's our approach to, well, that's what we, what we build with the contracts library and our approach to security. How do we build the right infrastructure with security best practices built in? And how do we make that a standard in the industry so that people actually focus on their core activity and their core area of expertise, not about building things that could be you know, a surface attack for, for um, hackers that should be uh, a given. So it is worth noting that the, the Bitcoiner perspective on how to construct a blockchain is that you build a maximally secure base layer that is does one thing and one thing very well, and then you build complexity on top of that. Where Ethereum is starting to, or at least with include the inclusion of the EVM, is an enabling more complexity at the base layer. And this is where Bitcoiners throw up the flag and say like any complexity at the base layer is bad because you want that base layer to be as hard as possible and they don't think anything can be built on ethereum and even though later stuff already being built on ethereum it's already too late to make that claim but i take uh, the, the i take the leaf out of their book and i bring it to DeFi and say some the the DeFi protocol that got spun up and introduced yesterday will never be as safe as the DeFi protocol that got spun up and introduced three years ago or six years ago or 20 years ago right and i think that's just because the way that DeFi works is that things that like you said that, that have lindy and for those that for those that don't know lindy is kind of just a measure of um the predictiveness of how of how long something is going to be in existence into the future based off of how long it's already existed, right? So like a really good example is the pyramids of Egypt, probably gonna be here for a really long time because they've already been here for a really long time. MakerDAO and Uniswap are like the two protocols on Ethereum have, that have really good Lindy. And I would generally consider these protocols pretty hard, right? They are pretty locked down, pretty secure protocols. And I think the way that DeFi grows is that it finds ways to develop the same things that Harvest was trying to develop, or maybe still is, but finds ways to lock it down harder, like make it make it a harder protocol. And then that sinks down to the bottom of the protocol sync thesis, right? Uh, Damien, are you familiar with the protocol sync thesis? I don't think I am. Okay, it doesn't matter. The protocol sync thesis means that dense protocols fall to the bottom. And there's a, a number of different ways to describe density, but I would consider the hardness of a protocol as something that's really dense, which allows it to be scalable. And so the way that I see DeFi growing is that uh, uh, protocols, we find harder and harder ways to achieve the same goals, and those fall down to the bottom of the stack, and then things grow on top of that. Is that kind of how, how you, uh, you view it? Exactly. That's that's what we did with the contracts library. You know, building common infrastructure that's standardized that anyone can use, so that people can build more interesting things on top. And, and going back to your example, like I've been in this space for almost like eight nine years now. So even before Ethereum existed, uh, so when Ethereum came up, and then the DAO hack scandal happened, and the first ICOs were happening. That was the wild. If, if this is the you know wild west, that was I don't know like crazy, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I think the same thing happened in the early nineties with the internet era, and I'm sure that happened like hundred and fifty years ago with banks. Uh, it's just a matter of time, and 
I think the space has a lot of very, very smart people building amazing stuff. And I'm quite confident that as, you know, as we provide the infrastructure and not only us, you know, it's the whole ecosystem and the community and our partners and our team, uh, we're learning and, and, and I'm confident that this is gonna be able to relatively soon support, you know, trillions of dollars or that's kind of our thesis. Now, there will be a trillion dollar economy powered by smart contracts. Developers will be building these applications and they will need a set of tools, products, and services to make sure that what they're building is safe and reliable. So that's Open Zeppelin's mission. Very cool. All right. We are going to get to Open Zeppelin's mission, what you guys are doing in, in terms of building this, this security shell. And I think we're going to answer the critics' questions because every time something like this happens in DeFi, there's a critic out there who says, Yup, this is exactly why DeFi will never work. It can always be hacked, right? No, it's exactly and why it's going to work. Exactly. So I, I think that um, you know, every time what ends up happening is actually we get stronger. There's a hardening process we go through. And I think some of the tools that you guys are developing are are kind of key to that. It's actual code that's being put out there. And, and hardening the entire DeFi layer. So we're gonna talk about that. And you've got an exciting thing that you just announced today. I know uh, the, the Open Zeppelin platform is something you call Defender. So guys, we are going to uh, talk about our sponsors, but stay tuned to that because we are gonna come back with Damien and talk all about the new Open Zeppelin platform and how we scale Ethereum and particularly security on DeFi in just a minute. The Bankless State of the Nations are brought to you by Wiren. Wiren is DeFi's first self-building community-run project, which I just get really, really excited about. Wiren is a system that seeks out yield in DeFi, and it does that in a number of different ways. Uh, a very aggressive way is with the vaults, where you can deposit your preferred asset of choice and different DeFi experts will come in and generate a strategy for what to do with your deposited token, right? And so it'll go find ways to get yield in that deposited token in DeFi. For those who want to just earn yield on their stable coins, the earn system is for you, where you can deposit your preferred stable coin and Wiren will go and figure out which money market on DeFi and DeFi is producing the best interest rate, whether it's DYDX, it's Compound or Aave, it looks around DeFi to see where the yield is coming from and it directs stable coins automatically so you don't have to. Check them out at yearn.finance to get started and also check out the stats page to see what other people are doing as well. We're also brought to you by Monolith. Monolith is your cool new DeFi account, your DeFi savings account, your DeFi checking account. Except the cool thing about the Monolith DeFi account is that it gets software updates, right? You actually get to increase the usefulness of this over time. So here are some of the features. Monolith is a smart contract wallet with a lot of the features that you would expect if you've come to know DeFi and what it is, you can you can add money to it. You can put that money to work uh, in Compound and, and accessing yield. Uh, but you can and you can also swap through Uniswap. What was cool with Monolith is that they will send you a very sexy Monolith Visa card that connects to your smart Monolith smart contract wallet on Ethereum. So it's a really awesome tool to live a bankless life with a, a, a savings account that gets software updates. So this is, this is something that you're never gonna find out in the real world, but you can still do real world things with you know real money and like buy your groceries. So that's just fantastic. Coming soon to Monolith, actually already here to Monolith, is now you can buy DAI and get it sent to your wallet directly, right? So it's also being an on-ramp. So you don't have to go through your centralized exchange like Coinbase or Gemini or wherever. You can just go straight from your bank account right into your Monolith checking account smart contract wallet. So check them out at monolith.xyz. All right, Bankless Nation, we are back with Damien, who is the CEO of Open Zeppelin, and we are talking about scaling security on DeFi. It is a necessary component to scale this platform to trillions of dollars and to be an open financial system for the world. Uh, Damien, you guys introduced something super cool just today, actually. So this week for, for folks that catch the podcast, um, and it's a platform that you're calling Defender. It is a operations platform for Ethereum, you guys say, with built-in security. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You were talking earlier about 
these libraries that you've you've created over time that millions of people have downloaded and and used like these are simple things like ERC20 standard type libraries but now this seems like you're taking it to the next level with a full operations platform can you tell us about what you've built here exactly yeah <clears throat> so today we launched open zeppelin defender it's the first security operations platform for ethereum the story for open zeppelin defender is We've now done over 150 audits. So you know, many of the most prominent blockchain and Ethereum projects out there. So we work with Compound, Uniswap, Coinbase, Aave, many others. And by doing these audits, we learned that there's no you know, comprehensive solution for managing high value smart contracts after they are released and deployed. And also by building these libraries, we understood how valuable it is for the community to have this you know, standard infrastructure that they can build on top. Uh, going back to the conversation we were having before, it's like all projects today have this struggle between moving fast, shipping new products, going fast to market while being diligent and minimizing user risk. So Opens Up on Defender tries to address that by providing standard components and a standard security operations platform with security best practices built in. So that projects, instead of having to build and maintain their own infrastructure, they can use Open Zeppelin Defender, ship high quality products faster, while also having these built-in uh, best practices so that they can minimize uh, security risks for both known and potentially unknown vulnerabilities. Yeah, so like one thing that that we're seeing here, it, it seemed a, a very common function. This is one that I uh, totally understand. A very common function across all kind of DeFi protocols is uh, the ability to administer a smart contract after it goes into production, right? Governing who can actually execute changes, how they can be upgraded, that sort of thing. And that is a, a weak point in the defense of all of these protocols, right? So with your platform, with Defender, you've got, I, tell me about this, but it, it says there's an admin feature, the ability to automate and secure all smart contract administration. Is that kind of what you're talking about? It's basically a, a smart contract administration module that's been audited, that's been looked at by like all of the, the largest security kind of firms in it, and it, you've created a, a module out of it that can be just dropped into a new DeFi protocol. Is that right? Yeah, so admin is one of the four components that Defender has. Okay. This admin component, as you said, allows uh, development teams to automate and secure their smart contract administration. Today, what they're doing is basically, uh, you know, managing their smart contract operations using, uh, you know, their own multi-sig wallets, but using uh, homegrown uh, screen scripts or like, there's a, it's a very messy process that it's prone to manual errors and mistakes. So what we're providing here is a very clean and seamless user interface where developers can upload their smart contracts, use their multi-sig uh, wallets to perform operations. So they don't need to trust Defender on having access to these contracts. And again, I think, or we think this is a way to scale uh, Ethereum and scale DeFi to the next level because not everyone uh, knows and should know all the technicalities of things, how things work or how things should work and what are the open vulnerabilities that could exist. No, use yeah. this, don't worry about the underlying things, just focus on what you need to do. Uh, it's, it's kind of, you can think of it like from going from command line to like Mac OS, beautiful interface. Yeah, super cool. And it goes back to something that David was saying earlier with th that these high Lindy, high uh, density in the protocol sync thesis. Hard. Uh, protocols, be, you know, the, the hard ones, <laughs> the hard DeFi protocols lay at the very bottom of this, right? So um, this administration functionality, one of the four core pillars of what you built, uh, works with multi sigs like Gnosis uh, Safe, which are already securing. Mm -hmm hundreds of millions and billions of dollars and we use Gnosis, Gnosis multi-sig at, at Bankless as a component, right? So you're taking these already very high Lindy protocols and then kind of bundling them up with others. And that's how we build this entire financial economy in these like very trusted, secure components that have high Lindy effect. So, 
I think we, while we saw, you know, throughout DeFi summer 2020, we saw these, this like friction between there being admin keys controlling uh, these protocols that just got spun up and people want like people wanting to reduce that admin key risk, but also wanting that protocol to innovate and iterate. Right. And I don't think as a community, we've really figured out how do we square this risk? Like we don't want admin keys because then we are trusting individuals, but we do want really rapid development and innovation. And it seems to be that what, uh, to me, that what I'm getting out of this, out of this Defender uh, product is that you guys are uh, providing infrastructure for more safe, more secure admin keys to control the protocol, but without having, uh, without, without having um, admin key risk, right? right? At least narrowing some attack vectors around admin key risk. Is that, is that uh, one of the features of, the, of Defender? Uh, so uh, that depends on the project, how they want to manage it, whether they want to have a single owner with an admin key or they want to distribute it to a DAO of token holders. What we do at Defender is, you know, you as a project, you choose what decisions you need to make and you choose what your governance model is and don't worry about the rest. You know, how it's done, how you make those decisions, how those get approved, how do you like, communicate to all the others? That's what Defender solves. Yeah, so it doesn't matter to you, like from a Defender perspective, whether the admin key is, is controlled by one single key or whether it's controlled by some multi-sig or whether it's controlled by, by DAO vote. But the beauty of DeFi, of course, is that all of this is fully transparent on chain. So folks can see for themselves the degree of control that so-called admins have, who has the access and the ability and the right to access a given contract and uh, factor that in, in how they're evaluating the trust minimization of a given DeFi protocol. Exactly. Yeah, in the end, different applications or protocols have different goals. Uh, but what we want to focus on is whatever your goal is, you build it and, and manage it using best practices. Yeah, so you also have a couple of other things as uh, core pillars, I guess, of Defender. Um, one is a relay module. Um, another is around auto tasks, creating automated scripts. Uh, another is around just you know advice on security best practices. I'd imagine that last one that you call advisor um, would have given security best practices about the BZX issue that Farm just ran into, maybe could have prevented, maybe would have prevented that. Um, but can you talk about some of these other modules too? Yeah. So with Relayers, we provide secure infrastructure for sending transactions uh, so that projects don't need to build their own and maintain it. Uh, then with uh, uh, um, the auto tasks, again, we allow projects to build their own scripts to perform continuous actions for smart contracts, but using a serverless uh, environment within Defender, so they need to, don't need to build their own systems, dedicate time on that, which are also kind of like uh, surface attacks for hackers to do something there and, and affect the operations of your smart contract. And finally, Advisor is a collection of security best practices that we have, and we're always updating on every step of the journey from development to testing to monitoring to operations so that if you're a project again like uh going back to what we we're talking about harvest what are the best practices that you need to implement uh you know these are the at least from the infrastructure level these are the risks that you might be facing this is what we provide you with the advisor list at different you know steps of your development journey and we provide you with the you know off-the-shelf secure infrastructure for you to build on top so that you do it in minutes instead of months. And then we give you this really cool, seamless user interface to manage all your operations, uh, reducing the um, you know potential errors of human mistakes that could put user user risk, user funds at risk. So Damien, before we went to break, I talked about the the, the critics. Um, they, they see another DeFi hack and they say, oh my God, DeFi is never going to work. You're never going to be able to secure this thing. What What's your response to that? Well, let's, I think look at the space and look what's happening. Talk to anyone who's building, uh, you know, something on DeFi and, and, and they're the smartest people I, I know. And... Uh, 
at least like look at the DeFi protocol, for example, these are like 10, 100 X better services than what I will get in a bank for getting a loan or, you know, transacting something. Uh, it's the same as the internet. I think the, with the, the, the more activity that happens uh, because, you know, DeFi and the open economy is a way much better alternative to the traditional systems that we're used to, the more activity and funds that go there, the more, you know, creative people that will build amazing things and innovate, us included as a company, you know, our mission is to, you know, protect the open economy so that we can foster its development and accelerate its adoption in the world. And solutions exist. Uh, it's a matter of, you know, being smart, being on top of things, implementing them and collaborating. So Damien, let's say this product came out at the beginning of DeFi Summer 2020. Uh, what, how would you have, have, have uh, guessed that these uh, protocols, these farms that got popped up really, really fast, really, really quickly, how would, how would have DeFi Summer 2020 gone differently if, they, if people had been using this product then? That's a great question. So uh, first, many of the vulnerabilities or exploits that we've, been, we've seen in the past few months were from known vulnerabilities. Uh, these vulnerabilities could have been prevented with the right you know, advice or documentation, or like, for example, the, the advisor component that we provide with all these best practices. So uh, just to start knowing these best practices and implementing them across your whole development journey should alleviate many headaches. Uh, and then if you actually add monitoring to Defender, uh, which is kind of in our roadmap, uh, you will be able to understand if there are critical scenarios that could be happening with your smart contract and be able to implement, implement some you know, auto tasks or some automated safeguards to uh, you know, take action and prevent bad things from happening or at least bad things, bad things from repeating themselves like the harvest 32 times iteration. And, and Damien, one of the things that we saw throughout DeFi Summer, and I wouldn't think, and probably continuing into the future, is that there's a, probably a lot of people that have some interesting ideas for how to build something on Ethereum. Except auditing and getting an audit is really, really expensive. And we we saw this with Yams, right, where they had this idea, they spun it out in ten days, they didn't get an audit because they like they didn't no one really wanted to cough up you know thirty thousand dollars for an audit how how does this help people that you know a thirty thousand dollar audit is just too far out of the budget like, how does this work for them yeah uh audits are a bottleneck today to defy or ethereum growth um we don't think that uh again you scale DeFi or Ethereum security with more auditors, you scale it from a kind of like a strategic level by providing the right infrastructure. That being said, audits are not replaceable. Like people will need audits, especially if they're you know, transacting a lot of money in their, their platforms. But at least, at least with OpenZapron Defender, we're trying to address this uh, struggle that projects are finding with respect to moving fast and breaking things to some extent, but also, you know, protecting their users from those mistakes, uh, which is critical when code powers real money. So it seems to me that Defender is a product that really raises the floor for security around new protocols, right? So like it doesn't replace an audit. Like if you are transacting a lot of money, a lot of value, you probably should still get an audit, but you can get out the door in a faster and much more safer way. And so I think when we're talking about like trying to get DeFi hardened and making that code just better, it seems to be that Defender as a product is, is really just uh, elevating the threshold for the protocol that gets out of the gate. Is that a, a way to look at it? Yeah, like in the end, Defender was developed over the past year in collaboration with top DeFi teams, including Compound, Aave, Open, uh, DYDX, Foundation, Notional. Uh, so this is kind of like what they need. Uh, and and if, they're, if they're listening to this, like, thank you for trusting us and thank you for, for giving us your, your input and, and feedback. 
we heard like the feedback that we've been receiving for Defender is amazing. Actually, we launched it today. We already have a lot of signups, uh, uh, which is great. And, and, and in the end, going back to your, your previous question, is like we at Open Zeppelin, we're thinking like security and risk management at a comprehensive level. Uh, it's not that you just need Defender or you just need an audit. We provide like contracts library for you to build things. Then we provide our security audits to inspect things that you build. And then we provide Defender for you to manage and operate things when they're launched. And this is like a continuous cycle that we think is uh, healthy for you know, projects to you know, operate in a secure way and, and in a responsible way towards their users. Damien, it has been absolutely fantastic to have you on State of the Nation. Thanks for all the work that you and Open Zeppelin do to defend the open finance space and to scale it up. We appreciate it very much. Where can folks find a bit more about Defender? So you can go into openzeppelin.com slash Defender. That's a website that you've been showing. There's Open Zeppelin today is open and free for everyone to use on testnets. So you can try it out, you can play with it. And we're uh, having applications are open for mainnet usage. So if you want to use it on mainnet, you need to fill out an application and we'll be getting back to you shortly. Fantastic, Damien. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I appreciate your kind words. And uh, no, this is a great podcast. Take care. Appreciate it. Wow. Um, Very cool stuff, David. So, um, you know, I'm going to say something a little outlandish here, but I am almost as excited about operation security platforms like that as I am about roll-ups, mm-hmm. right? right. Yeah, you know, we talked about roll-ups, which is basically you scaling layer two that or layer one with layer two, and that gets a ton of attention. But just as important, if we want to bring the world to bankless, to open finance, is that we have secure protocols that people can trust with trillions of dollars in value. Mm -hmm. This is like some of the unsung work that builders are doing to level up. And it's really lowering the barriers to entry to create a type of contract that can secure massive amounts of money in just like a few lines of trusted code. This is huge. This is as big to me as as roll-ups, this kind of work that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if money Legos aren't easy to snap together, then we failed, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> money Legos, they're Legos, they're toys. It's safe when you do it. Like, it's it's safe like when you break. do it. Yeah, they, they can't break. And there needs to be some sort of, you know, setup, some sort of infrastructure to make sure that when you build a money Lego, that it snaps into the rest of the money Legos. And I see that that's what Open Zeppelin is building with Defender, right? Uh, you know, the, the bull case I have for DeFi is dragging and dropping applications into each other, and it comes out as a new product that's safe out of the box. That's, that's how we get DeFi to take over the world, is that we reduce the barrier to entry for builders to be, you know, people that know how to operate a laptop. Like that's, yep. that's, that's what the end result of where we are trying to go. And so tip of the hat to open Zeppelin and Damien and all the people building the defender product, because that is a big step in the direction of dragging and dropping money Legos. All right, David, we, uh, we promised this at the beginning of the episode, but are we ready to veil unveil the first bankless art NFT? I think we're so. Ready to do that? I think so. All right. We're about to do that live. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some context Absolutely. for what this is? So about this. There, there are constant through lines coming through the bankless education uh, channels, right? And one of the through lines is Moloch, right? What are we here in DeFi? What are we here in Ethereum to do? We are here to coordinate, right? And Moloch is the embodiment of human coordination failure. And so we had we had a, a, an illustrator. His name's Fred uh, Frederick. He he illustrated this this uh, piece of artwork for one of my Moloch articles, which we've used for the Moloch podcast. Uh, and then he turned turned it into a GIF. Uh, and so there's only going to be one of these. Uh, we're going to make it uh, available to purchase on the Rarible site right after this live stream. So it's already up and running there. It's not yet purchasable because we're not done with the live stream yet, Uh, but it will be purchasable after the fact, right? And there's only one. And we're going to kind of, for every single through line that we talk about on the Bankless podcast, 
where there's going to be some sort of NFT to go with it, right? So this is the Moloch NFT. Uh, there is a an NFT NFT coming soon. Uh, we, we're calling that one the, the Metaverse. Uh, you guys saw the still image for that on Andrew Steinwald's piece. And so the, the, GIF, the GIF NFT version of that is in production, is coming out next week. Uh, so this is just gonna be a thing that we do. We NFT the through lines that, of conversations that we talk about on the Bankless Media. Yeah, so you know, part of the bankless experience is what we always encourage is like, um, eat your own dog food. Go try this stuff. I mean, so we did this uh, fantastic podcast episode with Jake and Andrew uh, Steinwald talking about NFTs. And I think I came into that article a little bit, uh, or that podcast rather, a little bit skeptical, right? Like, so what is actually the value of some piece of art on chain? And um, I feel like they sort of convinced me uh, that it does have value, right? And that this can be a new form as physical art is, this can be a new form of asset on the blockchain, on Ethereum in particular. So we're using this as an experiment to, uh, you know, to see how it works. So it should be pretty fun. We'll see how that works out and we will keep you updated. As always, we are trying the stuff that we preach mm-hmm. and this is just one of those ways. Um, this you know, David's it's also yeah, worth noting that the the there's a nice feature in Rarible that uh, unlocks like a little uh, section of the NFT that is only unlockable by the owner, where you can go and get the MP4 version of this rather than the GIF. So it's high quality, uh, more, more frames. Yeah. So interesting. A, as a, an owner of the NFT, you have an advantage versus the non-owners because you can access that file. Yeah, and Fred is just an awesome artist. Yes, um, it's so and, cool. You yeah. found him. We found him in the Bankless Nation somewhere. Yeah, on Twitter. He, so he's been uh, illustrating my articles for a while now. He he's done the ether rocket uh, in the in the night sky emoji. Uh, he's done a, a bunch of fantastic stuff. So I'm looking forward to seeing what else he can produce. All right, cool. Last thing, we uh, speaking of experimenting, doing your own dog food, we mm-hmm. probably owe the nation an update on our BAP tokens mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. we were doing there. So that was the launch of our BAP shirts with uh, apparel, these um, you know, scare shirts. We we're only launching 50 of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did an initial launch on Uniswap, but we've long promised a second phase launch. Right. And we're getting ready to do that here soon with something that is new and cool mm-hmm. uh, that we're writing a tactic on a balancer smart pool this is a draft of the article that you are leading david mm-hmm. you want to give uh, give folks a a quick peek into what that's going to be absolutely speaking of gifts that fred has generated that's that's another <laughs> one right there um so this is something that we are doing in collaboration with balancer uh and so for, the, for those that, that don't know balancer has two types of pools One of them is public and the other one is private, right? And the private pools have all possible privileges opened up to the admin of that pool. And then the public pools have every, has everything locked down. And there are certain parameters that every single balancer pool has that's free to change. Uh, which tokens are included in the balancer pool, the weights of the tokens, the swap fee of the tokens, and then a few other ones. Uh, and in order to be trustless, all of those rights and privileges have been removed from public pools. So the public pools are fixed and the private pools are totally open, except there's this total middle ground. Uh, Maybe, uh, Ryan, if you scroll down, I think I have that spectrum of uh, the the trust spectrum in there. Right, exactly. So there's this whole middle ground that isn't accessible to either of these pools. Like maybe we want to unlock the ability to change the weights of tokens, but keep everything else fixed in order to maintain trustlessness. And so Balancer is rolling out their smart pools, which allows that middle ground to be expressed. And one of these types of pools is called a liquidity bootstrapping pool, right? And so what this does is that there's two tokens and there could be more, but in the the basic example, there's two tokens and one token starts at like a 90% weight and the other token starts at a 10% weight. And over time they switch, right? They cross. And the way that that, how that changes the token is that the one that token that starts uh, with 90% of the supply is the token that is trying to be distributed. And the one that starts with 10% of the supply supply is probably something like DAI or Ether, right? And so you can put, you can put like maybe a thousand dollars of DAI into a balancer liquidity bootstrapping pool is what they call it. And then they, you can put a bunch of tokens that you just minted on the other side of it. And the token uh, that is to be distributed, in our case, the, the tokens that represent our t-shirts, but in other cases, tokens that represent a token sale, which is how the, this uh, smart pool first got generated, uh, the price of the uh, 
uh, token to be distributed starts high and moves downward in a Dutch auction fashion, right? And so it's we, for example, the the what we're going to do is we're going to start the tokens at a thousand dollars, and then it's going to trend towards zero dollars, and then at some point in between that time, however long it takes. Uh, it, the, all the tokens will be sold, right? Because at some point before it gets to $0, everyone will buy the token. And there's a ton of different reasons why a balancer pool like this will be really, really useful. And it's a really useful money Lego, a really useful tool for people that want to mint tokens and get them out into the hands of individuals. And the reason why we have to do this is, you know, Uniswap was a great way just to simply like inject a token into uh, a Uniswap pool and have people purchase them. But at some point you run into a dead end because the token price gets too high and then all of a sudden like no one wants to pay a ridiculous amount of price for a shirt right and then we get stuck and so that's how we ended up only distributing 16 out of the 50 tokens and so the remaining 34 tokens are getting added into the balancer pool we're going to start the price at i think uh, like roughly 1400 dollars, and then over 30 days it's going to trend towards zero and at some point in time before 30 days is over all the shirts will be sold because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming people will at least pay $1 for the shirts. I will. I will. I also <laughs> will do that. <laughs> um, and so, and, that, and, that, and that's how we get tokens into the hands of people that actually want to redeem the tokens for the shirts, which is the whole point of the experiment. So this tactic comes out tomorrow. I'm really excited about it. I'm working with the balancer team right now to get the pool up and running. Uh, I'm, and I'm actually just really overall bullish on this particular construction of a balancer pool. I'm really stoked, stoked about it. Yeah, awesome. So I mean, you, you, you explain it very well. So like, to, I guess in summary, there's two things for you. One is the tactic tomorrow that's going to teach you about this new primitive, basically a balancer smart pool that is just coming out. It's the thing that we've been waited for. It's one of the many use cases is a way to bootstrap liquidity for a token and make the distribution of it uh, very fair. And then the second thing I guess to know is that with that, we are actually relaunching the BAP token on top of that new money Lego, the balancer distribution tool. And uh, that will be a Dutch, Dutch auction, 30 days, mm -hmm. and it will start at the, the high price David mentioned, and then be, be cut down until all the tokens are distributed in a, a fair manner. Both of those things will be included in the post to teach you how to use this thing. So very cool. We yeah, are- uh, nice, nice job, balancer. Yeah, it's very exciting, the, the things they are building. All right, David, um, we should probably end it here. This has been a fantastic uh, fantastic episode where we talked about Harvest. We talked about this DeFi security layer. We talked about the hardening of DeFi. I got that word in for you one last time, my friend. Uh, and uh, very excited about what is in store for the future. Of course, guys, risk and disclaimers. ETH is risky. So are the DeFi products we talked about. Um, you could deposit money in, you could lose that money, be careful what you put in. But for those of the, us on the journey, we are headed west. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. This has been State of the Nation number 20 with Ryan and David. <laughs>